Talk Recorded live. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here with the second installment of our 999 event, uh, calling upon Yahweh and Yahshua and all of the saints of uh, true Israel to come together and expose the lies and the manipulations and the treachery of the, uh, God's supposedly chosen people who have been praying and feasting upon the true Israelites of the world for countless generations. And uh, William Fink is going to do uh, uh, section number two, uh, a two-hour segment of uh, usury in the, in the medieval up to the modern age, correct? Yes. Now okay. I don't need the, the introduction I wrote, but that's Oh, right. no, well, you can do that, too. I'm, I'm sure you, you have more detail. <laughs> but, okay, I'm going to turn the mic over to you, and I'll be monitoring in a different room, okay? Okay. All right. Thank you, William. Greetings. This is the second of six installments of Eli James's September 9th, 2009 Day of Prayer and Fasting. I have to admit I'm not really big on fasting, and I pray in my mind just about every second of the day anyway. In fact, I live in, in my mind as much as possible. And for that reason, outside of you people here at TalkShoe and the people I regularly communicate with, you know who you are, and the emails I get, I'm fairly oblivious to the things of the world. I don't get any news. I don't watch the TV. I don't listen to the radio. I believe that's how we all should be. And then maybe through learning in the scripture, we'd find an inner peace which transcends the things of the world. Perhaps then we would stop circulating all of the stupid calamity of the week and what the abomination in Washington is doing next emails. I had to throw that in. Okay, today I'm going to discuss the history of the Jews in medieval Europe. And, and their perfidy in our banking systems. This is an incredibly complex topic, much better suited to a very thick multi-volume work than to a 100-minute sermon. And I must admit that I am no historian of the Middle Ages in the first place. Most of my historical studies have been the period before the time of Christ. Yet I have tried to pick out what is most pertinent, and a lot of my articles here are from existing material, and that way I could develop an outline of just how certain Jewish banking families have gotten near control over our economy. We will not discuss those families in particular here, but rather I, I shall discuss the history which paved the way for the success of those families. Later on today in the fourth segment, I will have Clifton Emheiser, and we will take this discussion into modern times. According to Heinrich Gretz, in his History of the Jews, and Heinrich Gretz is a Jew, Volume 3, Chapter 2, the pagan Romans and the pagan Germanic tribes either got along quite well or were at the most merely indifferent to the Jews. The Jews had already been quite dispersed throughout the Roman world. There were um, there were Judean, whether they were true Judean or Edomite Judean is immaterial, and and surely from the the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament we learn that they were mixed. There were Judean settlements all throughout Rome, wherever there was a Roman colony with a Roman city. 
there were Judean synagogues and Judean people. And that, that, that was even in, in the Roman parts of Germany, Gaul and Britain at an early time, where they're both Israelite Judeans and Edomite Judeans in these various Judean, I, I shun from calling them Jewish because they're not, Judean settlements. So the pagans and the Jews like to claim that they were they they were tormented or persecuted by the Romans, and that's a lie. The Judeans got along quite well with the Romans. It's only the Judeans in in Palestine that had revolted from Roman rule on several occasions that were were punished by the Romans. And punished is a better term to put than tormented or persecuted. Well, according to Gretz, the Judeans, or as he calls them, the Jews, got along fine with the pagan Romans and pagan Germans. And that's right, Germanic paganism did not discriminate against Jews by any of the contemporary accounts. And, and I have to address this as an aside. Those white nationalist Odinists and other assorted neo-pagans like to try hard, but they themselves cannot find a cause against the Jews and the tenets of their own so-called religions. Of the 6th century, Gretz goes so far as to say that the only point of interest is the manner in which the Jews settled in the European states and lived unmolested in friendly intercourse with their neighbors until Christianity gradually encompassed them and deprived them of the very breath of life. Now I'm quoting Gretz. In the Byzantine Empire, in Ostrogothic Italy, in Frankish and Burgundian Gaul, in Visigothic Spain, everywhere we are confronted with the same phenomena. The people, even the barons and the princes, were entirely free from intolerance, felt no antipathy against the Jews, and associated with them without prejudice. To the higher clergy, however, the prosperity and comfort of the Jews appeared as a humiliation of Christianity. They desired the fulfillment of the curse which the founder of Christianity is said to have pronounced on the Jewish nation and every anti-Jewish, narrow-minded thought which the fathers of the church had uttered against them was to be literally fulfilled by embittering their life. At the councils and synods, the Jewish question occupied the clerical delegates quite as fully as dogmatic controversies and prevailing immorality which was continually gaining ground among the clergy and the laity, in spite or perhaps in consequence of ecclesiastical severity and increased austerity and observances. It is remarkable, however, that the Roman bishops, the recognized champions of Christianity, treated the Jews with the utmost toleration of libera and liberality. The occupants of the papal throne, and he's talking about the early bishops of Rome, shielded the Jews and exhorted the clergy and the princes against the use of force in converting them to Christianity. Now, there are causes for Christians to despise the Jews, and the Jews certainly despise Christians. For example, both Tertullian in the late 2nd century, the late 2nd century A.D. Bishop of Carthage, and Minucius Felix, a rather contemporary writer, talk about the calumny and slanders of Jews against Christians, and how the Jews were responsible for persecutions of early Christians, either directly themselves or by inciting pagan Romans. 
So with the spread of Christianity, the European world indeed began to distinguish itself from the Jews, which did not happen under paganism. The, sort of, the Jews distinguished themselves from the pagans, but the pagans never really made a point of distinguishing the Jews as, as being different or odious. The early Christian writer Irenaeus says, speaking of the Ecclesia, but in Christ every blessing is summed up, and therefore the later people has snatched away the blessings of the former from the father, just as Jacob took away the blessing of this Esau, for which cause his brother suffered the plots and persecutions of a brother, just as the Ecclesia suffers the self-same thing from the Jews. And even though Irenaeus doesn't have his theology quite straight, he he informs us fully that it's the Jews who are persecuting the Christians in pagan Rome. Cyprian and other early church writers also discussed the persecutions of Christians at the hand of the Jews. It's important to understand this because when the pagans came into Roman areas, the Goths and the Vandals and the Alans, and, and I call them they were half pagan and half Aryan Christians actually, they didn't have any any remembrance or acquaintance of these of these Jews. They they had no idea what they were like. So of course they had, as Gretz claims, no intolerance of the Jews, because they had no acquaintance with Jewish perfidy. It must be said that many tribes of the Goths and Alans and Vandals had adopted a form of Christianity via the East, and before they finally crossed into Western Europe, or rather came into contact with Italy called Arianism. This was not because they were Arians by race, which is actually a different word. Rather, they are said to have adopted the belief that Christ was not actually one and the same as Yahweh, God, a belief which was made popular by a Christian priest named Arius, who lived from about 250 to 336 AD. And by that, we know the time frame in, in which these Goths and, and Alans and Vandals were probably converted to Christianity. Some of the Byzantine emperors were even Arian Christians. Later writers, such as the historian Procopius, talk about the divisions or even hatred between Arians and Catholics, a word which was already in use to describe the generally perceived orthodoxy in Christianity of the time. Gretz goes on to say of Christians that those nations, however, which were baptized in the Arian Creed showed less intolerance of the Jews. But the more Arianism was driven out of Europe and the more it gave way before the Catholic religion, the more the Jews were harassed by proselytizing zeal. The early Catholics thought that they had to convert the Jews just like today's evangelicals think they have to convert the Jews. Their valiant resistance, meaning the Jews, continually incited fresh attacks. Gretz then describes how Catholic Christians began to persecute the Jews. Yet many of his charges are relatively weak from a Christian perspective, and other charges are unrighteous. Yet knowing that the Jews persecuted Christians, which Gretz of course doesn't mention, for so long while they had the upper hand in pagan Europe, the loss of Jewish power over Christians, which was brought by the, the Catholic Church, 
The early Catholic Church has to be given credit for that. The loss of Jewish powers over Christians alone was basically the only cause for Jews feeling persecuted. Also, I may conjecture that the only reason the Arians were tolerant of Jews is because until they crossed into the borders of the empire, they were ignorant of the Jews and their calumny. Early on, Jews were settled in various areas of Constantinople. In the 4th and 5th centuries, they lived in an area of Constantinople called the Copper Market, where there was a synagogue as early as 318 A.D. That synagogue was converted into a church in 422. The Jewish quarter of Constantinople was moved a few times during the Middle Ages. Yet a Jewish rabbi from Spain who lived in the 12th century, a Benjamin of Tudela, visited Constantinople in his travels around 1176 A.D. And he wrote an account where, among other things, he says that no Jew dwells in the city. The Jews have been expelled beyond one arm of the sea. They are shut in by the channel of Sophia on one side, and they can reach the city by water only. Whenever they visit it for the purpose of trade, the number of Jews at Constantinople amounts to 2,000 rabbinites and 500 Karaites who live in one spot, but a wall divides them. In other words, in the Jewish quarter, a wall divides the two sects of Jews. Many of the Jews are manufacturers of silk cloth. Many others are merchants some of them being extremely rich, but no Jew is allowed to ride upon a horse except a certain Rabbi Solomon. He is the king's physician, and by his influence, the Jews enjoy many advantages, even in their state of oppression. So Gretz evidently feels that Jews are oppressed because they're forced to live separately from Christians. Adolf Hitler did nothing new. This, this state, as Gretz continues, is very burdensome to them, and the hatred against them is enhanced by the practice of the tanners. And now these tanners are Jews, who pour out their filthy water in the streets and even before the very doors of Jews, who being less defiled, become objects of hatred to the Greeks. So evidently we have, and Gretsch doesn't state it explicitly, we have Greeks visiting the Jewish sector of the city, probably to, to buy their wares. The yoke is severely felt by the Jews, both good and bad. They are exposed to beatings in the streets and must submit to all sorts of harsh treatment. But the Jews are rich, so they can't be being beaten too bad. The Jews are rich, good, benevolent, and religious men who bear the misfortunes of exile with humility. Now, we have here a Jewish aspect of the Jewish life in Constantinople. And evidently, the Jews in Constantinople in the 12th century are quite wealthy. We see that Jews thrived in medieval Byzantium, while hating it at the same time. They claimed persecution by the Greeks, and they were rich. Will they ever stop making unjust claims against us? The Jewish quarter was burned by the Turks in 1453 when they conquered Constantinople. Yet it is said that the fall of the city appeared to Jews to herald their redemption. The Targum for Lamentations 421 was believed to prophesy the downfall of the so-called guilty city. Some predicted, some Jews predicted, that redemption, their redemption, would occur in the same year, 1453. 
Let me say that redemption to the Jews really means Jewish rule over Christians, something they've achieved today. Today, in the mind of the Jews, they're being redeemed. They have no other redemption ever. The Jews believe that they're their own Messiah, and they evidently believe this at the fall of Constantinople also. Going back to the 6th century, Gretz writes, In Greece, Macedonia, and Illyria, the Jews had been settled a long time. And although the Christian emperors persecuted them and laid them under considerable restraint, remember that this is always the Jewish perspective I'm giving this from here, they they nevertheless allowed them autonomy in communal affairs and the application of their own system of jurisprudence in civil suits. Every community had a Jewish overseer who had control of the market prices, weights, and measures. In Italy, the Jews are known to have been domiciled as early as the time of the Republic and to have been an enjoyment of full political rights until these were curtailed by the Christian emperors. They probably looked with excusable pleasure on the fall of Rome and exulted to see the ruling city of the world become the prey of barbarians and the mockery of the whole world and felt that the lamentation over Jerusalem could literally apply to Rome as well. So here we have it. We see that although Jets conjectures the Jewish hatred for a Christian Rome, he surely displays the general injustice which all Jews have displayed through the centuries, the hatred that a parasite has even for a benevolent host. Gretz writes about how oppressed the Jews were because they were eventually forbidden from converting their Christian slaves to Judaism, or often even from holding Christian slaves at all. He records that Pope Gregory forbid the Jews from owning Christian slaves. Gregory also forbid the forced conversion of the Jews, which is probably surely a good idea in light of Scripture as we know it. On page 45 of his third volume, Gretz states of the Jews in Spain. The Visigothic Jews must have remained in communication, either through Italy or through Africa, with Judea and Babylonia, from which countries they probably received their religious teachers. They adhered strictly to the precepts of the Talmud, abstained from wine made by non-Jews, and admitted their heathen and Christian slaves into the covenant of Abraham, as ordained by the Talmud. So Gretz here reveals that Judaism is, is nothing like the Hebrewism of the Old Testament, because we know that's impossible to admit anybody but Abraham's seed into his covenant. And the Jews surely don't know that the Visigoths of Spain and the Iberians of Spain are actually descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. The Jews don't know that. They claim that they're the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. While they're, and I'm going to continue quoting from, Brett's, from Gretz here. While their brethren on the other side of the Pyrenees were greatly oppressed and forcibly converted to Christianity or compelled to emigrate, and he means by that by the, by the Latin Catholic portions of Europe, they enjoyed complete liberty of religion, 
and were further granted the privilege which was denied the Jews in all the other countries of Europe of initiating their slaves into their religion, talking about Jews under the Visigoths of Spain. But as soon as the Catholic Church obtained the supremacy in Spain and Arianism began to be persecuted, the affairs of the Jews of this country assumed an unfavorable aspect. King Recared, who had abjured the Arian creed at the Council of Toledo, was the first to unite with the Synod in imposing instructions on the Jews. They were prohibited from contracting marriages with Christians, from acquiring Christian slaves, from holding public offices. Such of their children as were born of intermarriages were to be forcibly baptized. Well, that was probably a mistake. They were thus made to assume an isolated position which caned them all the more as they were animated by a sense of honor. Yeah, right. And until now had lived upon equal terms with their fellow citizens, having, in fact, been privileged more than the Catholics. Most oppressive of all was the restraint touching the possession of slaves. Henceforward, the Jews were neither to purchase Christian slaves nor to accept them as presents. And if they transgressed the order and initiated the slaves into Judaism, they were to lose all rights in them. The whole fortune of him that circumcised the slave was forfeited to the state. All well-to-do people in the country possessed slaves and serfs who cultivated their land and provided for the wants of the house. The Jews alone were to be deprived of this advantage. It is conceivable that the wealthy Jews who owned slaves exerted themselves to obtain the repeal of Recared's law. And to this end, they proffered a considerable amount of money to the king. Recared, however, refused their offer, and for this deed was commended beyond measure by Pope Gregory, whose heart's desire was fulfilled by this law. So we see that Pope Gregory actually commended the king for refusing the money of the Jews. Notice in Gretz's account here that there is something which his own Jewish mind does not take notice of, which is how easily the Jews resort to bribery to corrupt a ruler who is in obedience of sound Christian doctrine. Have they not followed that same pattern throughout their history? Their alien hearts are offended when money does not buy something. Of course, there is a lot more to this story. However, it was not long afterwards that the Jews brought the Moors into Christian Spain and helped them destroy this Christian kingdom. If all, if all of our leaders were like Recared, we would be a blessed people indeed. So while it is fully evident that in Byzantine and in Catholic Europe, the Jews were allowed to coexist, and to work, and to grow quite wealthy, as long as they did not attempt to convert or otherwise interfere in the lives of Christians. But that alone is not enough for a Jew. The Jew is not happy unless he could destroy the religion of the Christians and rule over them with his wealth. Sadly, too many Christian monarchs never realized this. And even though it is wholly manifest in both history and in society today, most Christians still don't realize it. 
The Jewish mind is fully revealed in Gretz's history, since he calls the laws which were present which were passed to prevent Jews from holding Christian slaves intolerant. Gretz is a Jew writing in eighteen ninety four. In light of the history of his own period, where Jews everywhere were preaching freedom and equality for all men, this indeed reveals his own race to be absolutely hypocritical. Let us take a general look at some of the laws passed against and in favor of the Jews in the medieval period. In Constantinople, up through the time of Theodosius I, and Theodosius was the last emperor of both the Eastern and Western Roman empires. After his death, the two parts split permanently. And he is also known for making Nicene Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire. That did not happen under Constantine. It happened under Theodosius I, maybe 60 or 80 years after Constantine. Christians cannot marry Jews who are not converted to Christianity. Jews cannot bless Christian crops. Christians could have no sex with pagans, and the penalty was five years of no communion. Jews were burned to death if they attacked a converted Christian. Jews were forbidden from converting slaves to Judaism. Relations, including marriage, were forbidden between Jewish men and Christian women. Now, in 341 A.D., the Council of Antioch, Christians were forbidden from celebrating Passover. Well, that was a mistake, but they wanted to distinguish themselves from the Jews. Theodosius, under Theodosius, however, Judaism was not prohibited by any law. And Theodosius opposed any attempt to destroy synagogues, and Judaism was declared a lawful sect. They just weren't allowed to convert into marry or rule over Christians. Now, Jews think that that's highly oppressive. In the Western provinces after Theodosius, Jews were excluded from military and court service. They were permitted from owning Christian slaves if they did not convert them. And Jewish converts to Christianity were allowed to convert back to Judaism. Under Theodosius II, approximately 415 A.D., Theodosius II forbade Jews from holding offices of honor, created against creation of, and, and he ruled against the creation of new synagogues being built. Jews were forbidden from mocking the cross. Well, I guess that must have been going on. Jews were forbidding from outraging Christianity, and I'm sure that was going on. Jews were to be exiled for circumcising non-Jews. And there was a, a prohibition against new synagogues being built, but old synagogues were not to be confiscated. Under Justinian, this is 100 years later, about 530 A.D., Justinian forbid the Jews from celebrating Passover before the Christian Easter. That's an odd commandment. Jews could not be a witness against Christians unless their testimony had been corroborated by a Christian. Now, that's certainly a necessary commandment. 
Justinian is said to have remarked that Jews would bring misfortune to Constantinople as they had for Carthage and Rome. And that was absolutely true. At the time of Justinian and thereafter, many Jews had also been dwelling in Arabia, in Egypt, and among the Moors. The Jews brought the Moors into Spain. Muhammad was a Jew. We can blame Islam on the Jews. Many Jews were also still in Babylonia. The bad figs of biblical prophecy never migrated into Europe as Scythians. And Peter's mission there, where Peter wrote from Babylon, seeing that, then evidently there were many good figs who never left there either. And eventually, I'm sure they all became mixed anyway. There were Jews among the Khazars from the 7th to the 11th century. The people under Khazar power included the Bulgars, the Magyars, and a lot of Gothic and Greek tribes of the, of the Crimea. Judaism became the official state religion of Khazars in 740 A.D. Many, many of today's Jews condemn Kostler as a loose cannon for his assertion that the Khazar kingdom was all converted to Judaism. However, Heinrich Gretz, this Jew who I've been quoting, documented this very same thing in his History of the Jews and asserts that virtually the entire Khazar kingdom, village by village, was converted to Judaism. After the 12th century, many of these Khazarian Jews, and also many Jews from, from Germany and Italy, were converted, well, I'm sorry, were migrated into Poland and Russia. And we know the trouble they caused later. Most important at this period were the laws against usury. The Jews had long been moneylenders to both Romans and Greeks. However, in 325 AD, the first council of Nicaea forbade clergy, clergy from engaging in usury, canon 17. At the time, usury meant simply the, the lending of money at interest of any kind. Any sort of loaning money at interest was considered usury. And the, the original canon merely forbade the clergy to lend money on interest above 1% a month. Later ecumenical councils applied this regulation to the laity. The Third Lateran Council decreed that persons who accepted interest on loans could neither receive the sacraments nor Christian burial. Pope Clement V made the belief in the right to usury a, a heresy in 1311 and abolished all secular legislation which allowed usury. Pope Sixtus V condemned the practice of charging interest as detestable to God and man, damned by the sacred canons and contrary to Christian charity. So we see that the early popes were, were firmly against the loaning of money at usury. Theological historian John Noonan argues that the doctrine of usury was enunciated by popes expressed by three ecumenical councils, 
proclaimed by bishops and taught unanimously by theologians. Most modern portrayals of Jews in the Middle Ages states that they were forced into money lending, tax collecting, and assorted vices, since they were excluded from most trades. This is nothing but propaganda. We've seen here the portrayal by Jews themselves of Jewish life in Byzantium that proves that this is propaganda. Rather, usury and money lending, and often even money itself, were odious to Christians who had no use for them, and so in truth, the Jews were always more than happy to fill the void. In the Western Empire, usury was, was, was forbidden everywhere. Christians usually operated on barter anyway in the feudal system, paid their taxes in kind, and had no use for money, let alone usury. However, Charlemagne, king of the Franks and emperor of the West, born in 742, died in 814, his attitude towards the Jews was that of a clever politician. He realized the advantages to be devised, derived from the, from, by the country from the business abilities of the Jews, and he gave them complete freedom with regard to commercial transactions. Some Jews seem to have occupied prominent places in Charlemagne's court. Charlemagne had a Jew for a physician named Farragut. We saw previously that in Byzantium there was a Jew who was the doctor to the king or the physician to the king. It seems to be a pattern. A Hebrew named Isaac was a member of an embassy sent by Charlemagne to the Muslims. But if the Jews were free in their commercial dealings, their political status generally remained almost the same under Charlemagne as under his predecessors. This is seen in his capitularies, some of which deal directly with the Jews. In bringing a charge against the Christian, a Jew would have to have, at various times, four, seven, or even nine witnesses, while a Christian was held to only three. No Jew was to engage a Christian workman on a Sunday, nor was he to take in pledge, at the risk of the loss of his property in his right hand, anything that was property of the church. No Jew was allowed to force a Christian to go to prison as a pledge for a Jew. When a Jew took an oath, he was to hold a copy of the Pentateuch in his hand and to swear, so help me God, the same God that was given the law on Mount Sinai, may the leprosy of the Syrian Naaman come, not come upon me as it did on him, nor the earth swallow me up as it did Dathan and Abiram. In this manner I have done thee nothing that is evil. Of course, if Charlemagne knew about the Nal Kidre oath of the Jews, he may have known better not to have the Jews take an oath at all, because they're lying. Some of the capitularies of Charlemagne, of Charlemagne were dictated by a spirit of proselytism. In regulating the laws of marriage, Charlemagne forbade Jews to marry relatives within the seventh degree of consanguinity. Well, they couldn't marry Christians, so I guess they had a hard time marrying. We desire, he says in this capitulary, that any Christian man or woman, any Jew or Jewess, who would contract a marriage should not be permitted to do so until after having provided a dowry 
and obtained in the church of God, not the synagogue, the benediction of a priest. So we see that Charlemagne, I wouldn't call that oppression, except maybe in the, in the sense of the Jews having to get married by a Catholic priest. However, the genuineness of some of Charlemagne's capitular, capitularies is not beyond doubt. Giving the Jews financial freedom to make all of their commercial transactions among Christians by Charlemagne was a problem, yet it did not allow Satan to escape from the pit. It only sent him to rope. The Jews, especially in the northern countries, which were still very tribal in their development, were always seen as aliens wherever they went, and they were forced to live apart from Christians. Because they were not under the jurisdiction of the church, and they were not direct subjects of any nobility, they received charters from the authorities granting them certain rights of domicile and commerce everywhere they went. They couldn't stay in a land without a charter. Sometimes the charter would come from a municipality, sometimes from a lesser noble, and sometimes from the king. If the charter came from a higher office than the local authority, then in fact, the Jew was actually often above the law and could not be accused in front of the lower authorities. The Jew could only be accused in front of the higher authority. This was a constant source of friction all through the Middle Ages between Christians and Jews. While the Jews themselves were often treated as chattel or property, by the king who gave him the charter. During the medieval period, there were on many occasions serious accusations against the Jews, especially for the ritual murder of Christians and Christian children. The Jews usually got away with these charges through the bribery of the nobles or the kings. I have just put up a page at Christogenia containing documentaries, and, and they're not complete, and I apologize for that. I can't find them all. But it's a series of documentary films on Jewish ritual murder of Christians, and these films explain a lot of this. Because the Jews so often got away with their crimes, this was the primary cause of the periodic pogroms against the Jews. The Jews today, in their histories, they always complain about these pogroms, which were periods in which Christians rose up against the Jews in medieval Europe and drove them out or exterminated them. But the Jews never, ever tell us why these pogroms occurred. It's also true that the Jewish association with debt, usury, taxes, and aside from that, gambling and prostitution being their primary business ventures, they didn't help their cause at all in, in the, the occurrence of these pogroms. Let's talk about the Bible on debt. First, I want everybody here to understand that this is not a condemnation of any of us as individuals. We've all been in debt. We can't really help how we were raised and how we got here. We were all born into a society which had already revolved around debt and unfair monetary policy. What one should do now is pray that we are able to change our lives for the better 
and be freed from the beast of debt. We should be doing that today. Ecclesiastes 21.8 He that buildeth his house with other men's money is like one that gathereth himself stones for the tomb of his burial. And you thought Confucius had it all, huh? He only ripped off our ancient Hebrew forefathers. Exodus 22.25 If thou lend money to any of thy people that is poor by thee, Thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him any usury. Period. End of story. The word of God should not be compromised. Psalm 15.5 He that putteth out, he that putteth not out his money to usury, though it taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Proverbs 22.7 the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Proverbs 28.8 He that by usury and unjust gain increaseth his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. James 2.6-7 Do the wealthy not exercise power over you, and they themselves drag you into trial? Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name labeled upon you? Nehemiah 5, 3-5, lamenting, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and homes. We have borrowed money for the king's tribute. And that is upon our lands and vineyards. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. That's exactly what's been going on in America the last 50 or 100 years. We borrow because we don't have money to pay our taxes, because our taxes are too high. So it's a never-ending cycle of debt. Romans 13.8 Owe no man anything but to love one another. Period. We are not to borrow, and, and when we do borrow, it, and when we do lend to our brethren, we are not to lend at usury or charge them any interest at all. Okay, now to get into how the Jews came to control our economy. But I wanted to lay a foundation from the early Middle Ages that interest is forbidden, that the Jews were... Christians were forbidden from borrowing at interest, that interest is against the, it's definitely against the scripture, that the early Catholic popes recognized it, that the Jews are basically the moneylenders in society, that they were oppressed when they couldn't loan Christians money at interest, they were oppressed when they couldn't convert people to their own religion, they were oppressed when they couldn't hold Christian slaves. Today they have us loan, borrowing money and they have us all as slaves. And the Jews are happy. And if anybody can't see those patterns, well, they're blind. But that's the truth and that's what the Jews do. Condensed from an article I found on the Internet, and I also remember this from a Bertrand Comparé sermon I read long ago, and I wouldn't doubt if this article wasn't based on Bertrand Comparé's sermon. 
Before the time of the central banks, the money changers had control of Europe's money supply. In Britain, they were generally known as goldsmiths. The first paper money started out as receipts that you would get after depositing gold with one of the money changers for storage in their safe rooms or vaults. This paper started being traded as it was far more convenient than carrying around a lot of heavy gold and silver coins. Eventually, the receipts were made to the bearer rather than to individual depositors, which made them easily transferable. A result of this was that it also broke any tie to identifiable deposits of gold. The money changers or goldsmiths then recognized that only a fraction of depositors ever came in for their gold at any one time. So they found out how they could cheat on the system. They started to issue more receipts than they had gold to back those receipts, and no one would be any wiser. They would loan out these receipts, which, which were not backed by the gold they had on deposit, and they collected interest on them. This was the birth of the system we know today as fractional reserve banking. And like the system of today, this meant that they were able to make astronomical amounts of money by loaning out these fraudulent receipts. As they gradually got more confident, they would loan out up to 10 times the amount they had in their deposits. To simplify how they made money on this, let's give an, an example in which a goldsmith charges the same rate of interest to creditors, to creditors and debtors. In this example, a goldsmith would pay six, an interest of 6% on the gold you deposit with them and then charge 6% interest on money or fraudulent receipts that you borrowed from them. As they would lend out 10 times what you had deposited with them, while they're paying you 6% interest, they are making 60% interest. This is on your gold. The goldsmiths also discovered that their control of this fraudulent money supply also gave them control over the economy and the assets of the people. They exacted their control by growing the economy, by, I'm sorry, by rowing the economy between easy money and tight money. The way they did this was to make money easy to borrow and therefore increase the amount of money in circulation, but then suddenly tighten the money supply, taking it out of circulation by making loans more difficult to get or by stopping the offer of loans altogether. Why did they do this? Simple, because the result would be a percentage of the people being unable to repay their previous loans and not having the facility to, to take out new ones. So they would go bankrupt and be forced to sell their assets to the goldsmith for literally pennies on the dollar. This is exactly what happens in the world economy of today, but it is referred to with words like business cycles, boom and bust, recession, depression, in order to, to confuse the population of the money changers scam. Today, the recognized international standard for fractional reserve banking, and I've read this in the Wall Street Journal, is nine and a half times deposits. A bank can loan out nine and a half times what the people have deposited in the bank. 
and they carry that on their books, those loans, as assets. They manipulated the economy in the same exact manner just a few short years after they gained control of it in the United States through the Federal Reserve System. In the 1920s, the money supply was very loose, loans were fast and easy, interest rates were low, and people borrowed a lot of money to invest it in Wall Street. In 1929, they stopped the fast, loose, and easy money supply. They contracted it, and the stock market crashed. Then they bought up all those assets for pennies on the dollars, and they've run our country ever since. I'll be talking about that later with Clifton Emmerheiser. There is no love when one neglects or violates the laws of God. The definition from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, as we shall see below, of a mortgage is a full disclosure of that one is walking in bondage and death when engaged in mortgages and debt. When one enters into debt, who is he a servant to? He's a servant to the merchants of the earth because their law, the law merchant, and we'll see this later also, has full jurisdiction over debt within their system. Between brothers, there's, real, there's not really any debt because we give and we expect nothing in return. For it is more blessed to give than to receive. But when we're dealing with the natural man and we go into the debt with the world, we're entering into private law, which is known as the Lex Mercatoria, or Law Merchant. What is the meaning and origin of the word mortgage? The term mortgage comes from mort, and mortis in Latin means death, as in mortuary or mortality, and gauge, which means a pledge. Mortgage means a dead pledge. In Bouvier's Law Dictionary of 1856, dead pledge is defined as a mortgage of lands or goods. It's a pledge of death because it's an engagement in debt, which is a neglect or violation of our duty. We're not supposed to engage in those things. This is why Paul says we're not to owe any man anything. This quote is from Stone, Smith, Frank, and Ramage, a book called Fundamentals of Business Law from 1950. The merchants of the Italian city-states, and we'll learn more about them later, and of the cities that were members of the Hanseatic League, rejuvenated general European trade in the 12th and 13th centuries, following its almost total abandonment after the fall of Rome. These traders took precepts from ancient laws of the Roman Empire, adapted them to their times, and created customs of trade and ways of doing business that became accepted amongst the merchants of all Europe. Now, we'll see later that a lot of those laws actually come from the Jewish Talmud. And hence, this body of business or commercial law obtained the name Law Merchant, the law of agencies, Sales, negotiable instruments, insurance, carriage, debt, guarantee, soffage, and transit, liens, partnership, and bankruptcy was made by these traveling international private merchants. In other words, the whole debt system that's set up today 
when one enters into it, one is entering into that law of private merchants, and that's who one becomes a servant to. The idea of paying interest on anything that is loaned to you is far into the word of God, because usury is condemned by God. Deuteronomy 15, 6, and 28, 12. Thou shalt lend to many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. Yet all of the money we have borrowed is from people who don't even have they don't even have that money. They just invent it out of thin air. Now we'll look and see how, when a mortgage or any other debt is contracted, one man is partaking of another man's sins. Basically, the mortgage system originated in ancient Babylon, and by partaking of the ways of Babylon, we're forsaking the ways of God. The following quote is from a law review called the Georgetown Law Journal, written by a Jewess named Judith A. Shapiro. And, you know, I'm using Jewish sources because they expose themselves a hell of a lot better than we expose them. The name of this article, I've had this article for years, and, and I found it extracted on the Internet, and I'm using that extraction. The name of this article is called The Shita's Effect on English Law. A law of the Jews becomes the law of the land. The introduction reads as follows. English law, like the English language, is an amalgam of diverse cultural influences. The legal system may fairly be seen as a composite of discrete elements from disparate sources. After the conquest of 1066, the Normans imposed on the English and efficiently organized social system that crowded out many Anglo-Saxon traditions. The Jews, now remember that the way for the Jews was opened by Charlemagne, and the Normans came from France, and they had very close, re from, a, from a district that is, is part of modern France anyway, called Normandy, and they had very close relations with the French. The Jews, whom the Normans brought to England, in their turn, contributed to the changing English society. The Jews brought a refined system of commercial law. Yeah, right. Their own form of commerce and a system of rules to facilitate it and govern it. These rules made their way into the developing structure of English law. And I'm sure that was through bribery and treachery. Several elements of historical Jewish practices have been integrated into the English legal system. Notable among these is the written credit agreement, the Shitar, or Star, as it appears in English documents. The basis of the Shitar, which is also the Jewish gauge, was a lien on all property, including real estate, that has been traced as a source of the modern mortgage. Under Jewish law, the shitar permitted a creditor to proceed against all the goods and land of the defaulted debtor. Both movable and immovable property was subject to distraint. Now, now the, the mortgaging of land was unheard of in Anglo-Saxon times. In contrast, the obligation of night service under Anglo-Saxon Norman law, barred a land transfer that would have imposed a new tenant and therefore a different knight owing service upon the Lord. 
the dominance of personal feudal loyalties equally forbade the attachment of land in satisfaction of a debt. Only the debtor's chattels or movable property could be seized. At this point, we will pause here and explain the above quote. When someone took out a loan, that loan could not be applied to the land. The land was free of any debt because it was under knight service. And in the feudal system, the knight had the land and returned his service in a wartime to the, law, to the Lord. And, and they had to stay um, trusted and trustworthy. You didn't want any old knight moving onto your land. These rules kept feudal obligations intact, assuring that the Lord would continue to be served by his own knights. When incorporated into English practice, the notion from Jewish law that debts could be recovered against a loan secured by all property, movable and immovable, was a weapon of socioeconomic change that tore the fabric of feudal society and established the power of liquid wealth in place of landholding. So they brought in the shitar as a weapon, and it completely changed what debt itself could apply to. And it is now the modern mortgage system. Previously to that law being implemented, the land could never be taken from you, but of course today it can. Now to continue, the Crusades of the 12th century opened an era of change in feudal England. To obtain funds from the Jews, the nobles had to offer their land as collateral, although the Jews, as aliens, could not hold land in fee simple. They could take security interest in substantial money value. The Jews were permitted to hold security interest in land. They did not occupy expanded interest in land beyond, beyond the traditional tendencies. The separation of possessory interest from interest in fee contributed to the, to the decline of the rigid feudal land tenure structure. So when they bring in a new law, it changes slightly, and then over time, they bring in other new laws, similar to what the feudal, I'm sorry, similar to what the federal government does today. They'll bring in just a little change that really doesn't affect much, and then they'll bring in another little change, and so on and so forth, and before you know it, everything is turned upside down, and things aren't exactly the way they used to be. To go on quoting, at the same time, the strength of the feudal system had inherent resistance to this widespread innovation abated. By 1250, scuttage had completely replaced feudal services. Tenant obligations had been reduced to money payments. And as the identity of the principles in the landlord-tenant relationship became less critical, meaning that the whole system of knights and lords just fell apart, a change in the feudal rules restricting alienability of interest in land became possible. In the same law review, under the section, The Jewish Credit Agreement in Feudal England, page 1182, it explains the more intricate history of the shitar in Jewish law. The law of the shitar developed and elaborated by 500 A.D. in the Babylonian Talmud, and the creation of the Talmud took a few centuries, 
antedates the Norman conquest by six centuries. Historically, the shitar was an instrument that established formal obligation either in contract or in debt. At the moment that a debtor acknowledged his indebtedness through a shitar, a general lien was established encumbering all the debtor's property as security for ultimate repayment. In case of default, the creditor could proceed not only against movable and immovable property held by the debtor, but also against encumbered land that the debtor had already transferred to a third party. The debt attached to the land in the creditor's lien had priority over subsequent alienations. Because of the severe obligation imposed by the shitar, the contents of the instrument followed a standard form designed to inspire authenticity and precision. Each shitar recited standard clauses of obligation, the creditor's right to customary modes of execution, and the final phrase stating that the document was not merely a forum, but a statement of an express contract. Inserted into the forum language were the names of the parties, the sum and the currency of the debt, and the date of the obligation, thereby indicating the creation of the lien. To prevent fraud, the document was signed by two witnesses who knew the parties. So when you see the description of the original shitar, it's the same description as the modern mortgage. To continue, a nation of wanderers, in adapting a variety of cultures, determined that the language in, in which the shitar was written should be irrelevant to its legal validity. Thus, in dealing with the surrounding non-Jewish populace, Jews were content that loan agreements be formalized in Latin or in the Norman French of early England. Generally, Jewish parties and witnesses were to test in Hebrew and Christians in French or Latin. Although neither party may have understood the other's language, the document had the full force of law in both communities. The crucial limitation on debt collection under Jewish law was that a creditor had a lien against the debtor's land, but not against the debtor's person. Personal freedom was not to be diminished by a debt obligation, and that changed later, and a credit could not enslave anyone who was unable to repay him, a creditor. The origin, the origin of this practice was the biblical protection of the dignity of debtors as embodied in the injunction not to enter the debtor's home to receive a pledge, but rather to wait outside for the debtor to bring it out. This was the structure of the, of the law of obligation that the Jews brought with them to England. So what we see here is the modern mortgage system and its origin. It came out of the Babylonian Talmud, and it was adopted by the merchants of the world, the banking system. Therefore, it is fully revealed that he who engages in a mortgage is yoked with those of the world. Ruling during an era of socio-economic change from 1272 to 1307, King Edward was wont to legislate accordingly, and Edward was weary of the Jews. Thus, he issued laws forbidding the Jews from holding real property, denying them usurious practice, and ordered them to wear distinctive dress and identifying badges. So Hitler did nothing new when he forbade Jews from owning land, and making them wear distinctive dress and identifying marks. On its face, it would appear that he was repeating history. But, even as he restricted Jewish moneylenders, 
Edward expanded the universe of non-Jewish money lending. He had before him a model of secured debt contracts enforced for centuries by the royal courts for the royal users. What we see from the above is that the non-Jews picked up on the ways of the Jews and became one with them in their Babylonian Talmud. So we're not talking strictly about the Jews. We're talking about the spirit of this Antichrist, which is promoted and enlarged by both the kings and the merchants of the earth. In the Statute of Merchants in 1285, Edward extended to creditors the forms of registry, remedy, and enforcement that had previously been the substance of the exchequer of the Jews. Under the statute, a debtor acknowledged the existence of his debt before the mayor and one of the recording clerks. The clerks recorded in the debt two rolls, one to remain with the mayor and one with the clerks. In his own recognizable handwriting, the clerk prepared a debt instrument to which the debtor affixed his seal and the officials affixed the king's seal. The instrument was given to the creditor who had presented to the mayor and the courts to prove his rights if the debtor defaulted. More than the enrollment procedures parallel, more than the enrollment procedures paralleled the structures of the exchequer of the Jews. The remedies also extended to Christian creditors the relief formerly available only to the Jews. No longer was a Christian creditor release, creditors released before judgment limited by the debtor's absence. If the Christian creditor presented to the mayor a matured acknowledged debt instrument corresponding to an enrolled debt, he had established full right to relief. If the debtor did not pay, the creditor eventually obtained access to the debtor's lands, even as the Jews had already been doing for years. And if the creditor was ejected from the debtor's lands, he could bring in a seize of novel decision to be put back in possession. The statute of merchants expressly allowed merchants damages and all necessary and reasonable costs in their labors, suits, delays, and expenses. The same label that disguised the otherwise usurious interest in Jewish contracts. Finally, the king assumed the duty of maintaining the roll of debts, affixing his seal next to the debtors, and charging one penny for each pound of obligation. So now the king's making money off the loans. This, newly, this new law expressly excluded Jews. So the king made money off loans except for Jewish loans. We see how this spirit was developed and promoted. The Jews invented it. The Christians bought the rights to the invention. And then the king, in order to make this new spirit appear Christian, excluded the original inventors, the Jews. And then he went even further to complete the ruse. Five years after the Statute of Merchants, Edward first expelled the Jews from England. Now, I'm going to say that there's something, that this, this something going on that this article doesn't really cover, and that is all of the accusations against the Jews for other crimes that they committed, like ritual murder of children, and, and it was proven many times over that this occurred. 
and and it's totally unmentioned here when and and that contributed greatly to Edward's expulsion of the Jews from England. However, we see that Edward, before expelling the Jews from England, fully adopted their monetary laws and their policies as English law and policy. To, to go on quoting from the article, religious hostility was rife. Repeated adages had depleted the Jews' resources and lessened their value to the king's purse. No longer were the Jews the unique source of credit in England. By the statute of merchants, Edward had granted to all non-Jewish creditors the same remedies and procedural rights previously available to the Jews. Debts were secured by land, and the security interests survived the death of the creditor and the alienation of the property. In addition to the property that is cheated to the king on their departure, in other words, the, the king seized the Jews' property when, when he got rid of them, the Jews left behind a law of debtors and creditors in the Talmud, introduced in the exchequer, and preserved now in the laws of England. Traces of the Shetar procedures survived for centuries in English law. A sealed debt continued to be discharged only by a deed of release or cancellation or destruction of the debt instrument. The practice of debt cancellation by requiring return of the Pez of the Chirograph continued from 1194 until its abolition by statute in 1833. Most important, the encumbrance of real property permitted by Jewish law of the Shetah has been fully adopted into English law. Bonds contain the traditional Hebrew formula of pledging, all my goods, movable and immovable. Creditors had the statutory right to execute against the debtor's land. No longer were personal obligations and rights in land rigidly separate. Even while Edward was divesting himself of his Jewish moneylenders, he made their legacy permanent. A small but significant principle of Jewish law wherein personal debt, superseded rights, and real property had become the law of the land. Oh, that crafty serpent, the ways of the Babylonian Talmud, mortgage practices became part of the common law of England. The law of merchants of the earth in England was merged with the common law, which up to that time contained only biblical law. Under biblical law, you can't take a man's land. So today, not permanently, so today the term common law includes the law merchant. The merger took place in England, and in the 1600s, through a court decision by Lord Mansfield, and was then brought to America and incorporated into the federal and state constitutions. So we see how man was was so we can see how man has taken what was once a private way of doing things, and they've made it all part of the law merchant, the lex mercatoria. This is all an example of why Proverbs 22.7 warns us about those who join and engage in the ways of the heathen. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. A lot of financial restraints were also lifted against the Jews by I'm sorry, a lot of financial restraints against the Jews were also lifted by the Thirty Years' War. 
The Thirty Years' War lasted from 1618 to 1648. It began as a renewal of religious warfare in the provinces of Germany, but quickly spread throughout Europe. As it spread, it began to take on more political meaning rather than a religious one. Thus, it became a struggle for dominance between European powers. Catholic France, led by Cardinal Richelieu, allied with the Protestant princes of Germany and the Protestant king of Sweden against the Holy Roman Empire. The source of the conflict stretches back to the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther. When the church split, it created the problem of who was going to decide which religion people were going to practice. The church wanted complete authority to rule over religious matters, whether or not the people were actually living within the imperial borders of the Holy Roman Empire. The German princes wanted to be able to decide for themselves which religion the people inside their borders practiced. France and Sweden entered the conflict when they realized that they could gain power at the expense of the Holy Roman Empire. In the end, the German princes gained the right to choose their official state religion, thus reducing the authority of the church in international affairs. This long and terrible conflict accelerated the reintegration of Jewry into 17th century European society. Before the war, the Jews led a highly restrictive life. The Cossack pogroms of the late 1500s killed over 40,000 Jews, thus creating an environment of death and destruction that isolated the Jews against violent Cossacks of Poland. On top of this, the Jews were only allowed to live in a very few European countries. England, in, in England, the Jewish population was still, was still expelled. In 1290, France and Spain followed suit in 1394 and 1492. Where Jews were, where Jews were allowed to live, they were still restricted to certain arts of the city, to certain parts of the city called ghettos. Thus, Jews were extremely isolated from European society in the years before the Thirty Years' War. This trend of isolationism was reversed by the Thirty Years' War. The largest reason for the reintegration of Jews into society was the development of a good relationship with the Holy Roman Emperor. To explain this unlikely match, we must look at the advancements of Jews in the economic sphere while Jews were continually persecuted and mistreated socially they succeeded greatly in economics. Many Jews made fortunes off of the trading and exploratory voyages of Spain and Portugal in the 15th century. Also many Jews, as a result of religious tendencies of Christians, were bankers. Christians weren't bankers. Thus, in many places, they were the sole suppliers of loans and bank accounts. Thus, many Jews were wealthy and experienced in international matters. As the Thirty Years' War raged on, the Holy Roman Emperor began to run out of money. Fighting a war against three large European powers that had vast monetary resources was incredibly expensive. The Holy Roman Treasury was struggling to provide the added expenses of the war. In Italy at this time, there were an incredible amount of Jews, and we'll get to them in a few minutes. These Jews lived harsh lives. They were confined to ghettos and were legally recognized as a race inferior to Christians. 
However, they were extremely prosperous merchants, bankers, and traders. Thus, they had incredible monetary sources at their disposal. The emperor saw a golden opportunity in the plight of the Jews, because they lived such hard lives, they could provide loans in exchange for certain freedoms that Christian bankers took for granted. In this way, the treasury would be refilled without having to repay interest on expensive loans. As a result of this relationship, Judenstadt, a Jewish ghetto in Prague, was spared when the rest of the city was burned to the ground by the imperial army. This ghetto was also enlarged and improved. Thus, a Jewish population of a few hundred in 1600 grew to a Jewish population of a few thousand by 1650. In 1623, in exchange for a large no-interest Rome to the Holy Roman Emperor, Jews in Italian cities were allowed to trade in wine, cloth, and grain. Christian merchants had previously monopolized this activity. The policy of freedom in exchange for money was not just practiced in the empire. As the war continued and the other participants began to run out of money, they too developed this strategy. In Vienna, a community of Jews was allowed to build a synagogue. Up to this point, the building of synagogues had been outlawed since 1421 in Vienna. In nearly every major city in Europe, Jews were granted access to trade fairs. They had been systematically banished from all trade fairs, because they were competition for Christian merchants. They were allowed back into the trade fairs because it increased their financial security and thus more money could be extracted from them. Thus, as a result of the cost of war, Jews were reintegrated into society. But let me say that this isn't entirely fair because the Catholics had already gotten soft on usury and justified it by redefining it, and this was at the hands of, of Jewish influence. From a paper by Catholic economist Joseph, Joseph Burke, in 1515, the Fifth Lateran Council defined the real, quote-unquote, real meaning of usury when, from its use, a thing which produces nothing is applied to the acquiring of gain and profit without any work any expense, or any risk. Burke argues that the economic conditions of the Middle Ages could not have justified any payment of interest. But structural changes to the economy, including the abolition of slavery, inflation, and the emergence of markets for investment, justify interest on the basis of default risk, the costs of inflation, and opportunity costs. I would counter Burke by saying that the emergence of markets for investment, the structural changes to the economy, and the inflation, which he's pointing a finger at as, as factors in the allowance of usury by the church and the redefinition of it in order to allow it, were all brought to us by those same usurers who have always profited from usury. And the initial allowance of those people to manipulate our economy in the first place simply opened the floodgates for what is now being rationalized. Usury in the first century was, the simple, was simply the lending of anything at interest. It was evil then, 
and it's evil now. In the 1100s and 1200s, the merchants of Italy defined merchant law and started restarted international trade amongst the nations of Europe, which had been more or less dead because Christians for a long time simply didn't borrow borrow anything on usury and and most of the time they didn't live they didn't use money at all they led simple agricultural lives or lives of a trade and they got everything that they needed from barter and they paid their taxes in kind why did the catholic church suddenly go soft on usury in 1515 and redefine it so that certain people could loan money at interest. The House of Medici was a political dynasty, a banking family, and later a ducal house who first began to gather prominence under Cosimo de' Medici in the Republic of Florence during the late 14th century. The Bedici family came from the agricultural Mugello region, north of Florence, being mentioned for the first time in a document of 1230. The origin of the name is uncertain. Well, that's not true. Medici is plural of medico, meaning medical doctor. The family gradually rose until they were able to found the Medici Bank. The bank was the largest in Europe during the 15th century, which is the 1400s. Seeing the Medici gain political power in Florence, though officially they remained simply citizens rather than monarchs, the Medici produced three popes of the Catholic Church. And in 1531, they became the hereditary dukes of Florence. The duchy would soon be elevated to the Grand Duchy of Tuscany after a territorial expansion. Their wealth and influence, initially derived from the textile trade, guided by the guild of the Arte dell'Olana, like other such families, they dominated their city's governor. They were able to bring Florence under the family's power, allowing for an environment where art and humanism could flourish. They fostered and inspired the birth of the Italian Renaissance, along with other families of Italy, such as the Visconti and Sforza of Milan and the Este of Ferrara and the Gonzaga of Mantua. The Medici Bank was one of the most prosperous and respected institutions in Europe. There are some estimates that the Medici family were the wealthiest family in Europe for a period of time, from this base, they acquired political power initially in Florence and later in wider Italy and Europe. A notable contribution to the profession of accounting was the improvement of the general ledger system through the development of the double-entry bookkeeping system for tracking credits and debts. This system was first used by accountants working for the Medici family in Florence. So we have a banking family running the Catholic Church at the same time that the Catholic Church goes soft on usury, all right in the middle of the Reformation and a break from the church by half of Christendom. 
Not that the Reformation held the line against the bankers, for not long afterwards, as we shall see, they too succumbed to the money powers. The Medici popes were Leo X and Clement VII, and it was also Leo XI who died not quite a month after becoming pope. They were, for much of the 16th century, the de facto rulers of both Florence and Rome. This is not the final word for Catholics who were against usury, and subsequent popes would condemn it, but it is a major turning point in the attitudes of many in the church. The redefinition of the word usury by the Catholic Church in the 16th century persists among the, Catholic, the modern church and its apologists to this very day. Mark Valeri, an article by Mark Valeri on the rise of usury in early England, commerce, bills of exchange, and the morality of money. In 1637, a recent immigrant to Massachusetts Bay named Dennis Gere dictated his will in the presence of the colony's governor, John Winthrop. Gere apportioned most of his modest estate among his family and launched into a remarkable act of contrition. The Lord our God of his great goodness since my coming into New England has discovered me to me all usury to be unlawful, he confessed. To make restitution, Gia charged his executives, who included Pastor John Wilson, to restore all such monies that he had received in England by way of usury. The details were important. English law allowed up to 8% interest on loans, but the penitent Gear meant to do the law one better. He wished to manifest his distaste against every evil way. Geary practiced usury without compunction in old England, as he put it, and had learned his duty in New England. Winthrop and Wilson had taught him that usury was sin, and he meant to repent of it as a testimony to his newfound life in Massachusetts. So we see in 1637 in New England that usury was considered sin. Loaning money at interest was still considered sin. From the mid-16th century to the 17th century, few topics aroused such extensive debate, even in New England. In 1699, the third-generation Boston pastor, Cotton Mather, informed New Englanders that the Puritan ministers of the Boston area no longer regarded usury as sinful. Meeting as the Cambridge Synod, they had determined that usury, or an advance on anything lent by contract, the import of the reference to contract as explained below, was legitimated by the divine law of the Old Testament and given countenance in the New Testament. So when the Cotton Mather in 1699 Puritan ministers suddenly changed their mind about usury, justified by economic necessity and utility, mandated by the ethical principle of equity, required the philosophical meaning of money itself, and congruent with the moral law of charity, only Catholics soaked in ca papal law, canon law and papal superstition 
Mather wrote for the other ministers, maintain the old prohibition against usury. So even though certain Catholics had already defined usury, now in 1699, Cotton Mather is about to define it the same way the Catholics did in 1515. Gears Will in Mather's account of the 1699 Cambridge Synod suggests three reflections on usury. First, the practice signified deep moral and spiritual dilemmas for early New Englanders, enough to occupy the devotional focus of a commoner making his will, as we've seen with Gear, and of assembly of divines addressing widespread social dilemmas some 60 years later, as we see with Mather. Usury, indeed, was one of the great moral subjects for early modern Englishmen and for French and Dutch writers. From the mid-16th through the 17th century, few topics aroused such extensive debate. Economic counselors to the English crown propagandists for overseas trading communities, humanist essayists, municipal officials, writers of devotional tracts, preachers, authors of formal theologies, were all writing about usury. And I'm sure you could see which side the lines fall on, or who fell on which side of the line. In today's economic conversation, the globalization of the free market would be a similar sort of issue. The term globalization is everywhere. Few opinions on economic life, the market, or social relationships in general omit some account of it. American Protestants, or in this case New England Puritans, of Gears generation may have practiced usury, but they associated it with vice and iniquity. The common interpretation might take Mather's defense of usury, as the essential Protestant mentality. There was a Catholic teaching on usury encoded in a 1745 papal edict and never officially rescinded, but it decreed usury to be unconditionally and universally law. I'm sorry, wrong. Early Protestants, especially John Calvin, according to this common interpretation, broke from the Catholics on that, and they observed that the value of money, in fact, changed through time. Whatever the medieval schoolmen taught, in the expanding commercial melee of Protestant urban centers, price inflation rendered a pound worth so much grain one year and less the next. The creditor who loaned one pound in 1555 and received a pound in return in 1557 might in fact lose value. Some increase on money merely kept price, kept pace with price inflation. At this point, I will interpolate Valero's article from Calvin's writings and then offer some comments. Calvin wrote, but if we would form an equitable judgment, reason does not suffer us to admit that usury is to be condemned without exception. Calvin was pro-usury. He also said, whence it follows that the gain which he who lends his money upon interest acquires without doing injury to anyone is not to be included under the head of unlawful usury. So Calvin again approves usury. In response to Calvin, I must countenance that this entire mentality of price inflation and usury being essential in the first place is only due to the fact of not identifying the culprits 
who will want to manipulate the money supply. We see the same thing in the United States in the late 1800s, where the markets were consistently agitated and depressed in order to persuade the corrupted and gullible politicians to approve a private central bank. All of Calvin's arguments in favor of usury are sophistic and deviate from the true meaning of Scripture. In, response, in contrast to Calvin, Martin Luther and all of the German reformers condemned usury strongly and directly. Martin Luther says, besides such necessary ecclesiastical affairs, there would be also in the political estate innumerable matters of great importance to improve. There is the disagreement between the princes and estates. Usury and avarice have burst in like a flood. They have become lawful and are defended with a show of right, wantonness, lewdness, extravagance in dress, gluttony, gambling, idle display, with all kinds of bad habits and wickedness, insubordination of subjects, of domestics, of laborers in every trade, also the exactions, blah, blah, blah. Martin Luther condemned usury and put it in the same category as wantonness, lewdness, gluttony, gambling, and idle display. To go back to Valero's comments on Calvin, more importantly, the opportunity for long-distance exchange transformed money into a means of production. Now, this is important in understanding why the Catholics redefined usury in 1515. The Catholics have actually said when they redefined usury that the real meaning of usury when from its use a thing which produces nothing is applied to the acquiring of gain without profit, any work, any expense, or any risk. Now, Calvin says that money is part of the means of production. So they redefined the concept of money, and they redefined the concept, concept of usury in order to make it acceptable to, the, to Christianity. And that's exactly what they did. And Cotton Mather signed on to it, and Calvin signed on to it, and the Catholic Church signed on to it. And that's why they all engage in usury today, because they redefined it to make it morally acceptable. <laughs> we see King Edward, he adopted it long before any of these others. He adopted it in, by 1270, 1280 A.D. I'm going to continue with um, Valero's argument. Many Catholic moralists anticipated the supposedly Calvinist argument long before Calvin. The papacy validated Italian charity banks that charged interest on loans to Venetian merchants and used the profits for charitable purposes. So that's when the church first got involved in usury, even though popes of the Medicis, the Medici banking families, had already been pope. 
Moreover, influential early modern Calvinists, including Calvin and many Puritans throughout 1630s in England and New England, often viewed usury with suspicion. So we see a split in, in Calvin's own followers. They urged severe restrictions on loan practices through the mid-17th century and wielded church discipline against violators. True enough, they allowed small rates, they allowed small rates of interest that kept pace with inflation. This opens the floodgates. They also permitted commercial investment for profit, as long as the creditor bore the risk of the investment. That is, if a merchant paid for one quarter the cost of an overseas trading venture, then he deserved one quarter of the profits, as long as he risked the possibility of loss through storm, accident, or piracy. I have to comment that that should not even be confused with usury, because usury is the loaning of money and interest. It should have nothing to do with commercial investments. We'll see um, on, on the next segment what, what Adolf Hitler even thought about that. This allowance, however, did not preclude prohibitions against contracts and guaranteed profits to creditors. Such contracts, the critics argued, took unfair advantage of debtors who alone bore risks and shared rewards. Puritans such as William Perkins, William Ames, and John Cotton, along with lesser lights, would have taken Cotton Mather's phrase and advanced on anything lent by contract as usurious and immoral. John Gears' will reflects a widespread assumption among his generation that usury was nearly always wrong despite the fact that most European states, including England, legalized interest rates from 6 to 8% on domestic loans and 10% on overseas credit. And we see that Charlemagne rolled the ball on that. William the Conqueror brought it to England. And Edward, the king, adopted it and expanded on it and brought it into Christendom when it was once the exclusive province of the Jews. Social commentators and moralists in London, such as the humanist jurist Thomas Wilson, the economic writer Gerard de Mal Malinez, I, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that name, most Anglican theologians and Puritan preachers decried the various schemes by which creditors made profits without active production and labor. So we see that some humanists are against usury. As though the mere elapse of time enhanced the value of money. They complain that usury, outside of proper recompense for inflation and the risks of investing in commercial ventures, appeared to corrupt nearly every economic transaction in the economy. By the 1620s, usury had become, for its critics, a synodoc or synonym for nearly every form of avaricious dealing, especially market-induced misbehavior. However, much humanist and religious, religious moralists accepted small amounts of interest and commercial investment as legitimate. They especially condemned um, the financier who made a living solely from lending money. The Dutch Reformed Church went so far as to mandate excommunication for the sin of being a banker. Usurer was the worst form of name-calling. 
The final difference between Gear and Mather indicates that the New England Protestants changed their understanding of usury over the course of the 17th century, just like the Catholics did in 1515. During the great expansion of overseas commerce from the 1650s through the 1680s, social commentators in England and America began to reconsider the boundaries between licit and improper loan practices. In effect, innovations and the use of credit outpaced the old moral reservations and mandated a more liberal attitude toward what critics previously called usury. And I'm going to take offense to those remarks by, by Valero here because he, he's missing something. In the 1600s and in the 1700s, the Jews were already here. The Jews were already in our port cities, awaiting shipments from overseas for sale. They were already loaning and borrowing money at interest. They were already corrupting Christian pastors with their belief that we need to be able to borrow money at interest in order to buy these products. It's, it's um, a fact of history that in the early New York newspapers, such as the New York Herald, we see advertisements placed by Jews advertising every time a commercial ship comes into port, the Jews would place ads in the newspapers and advertise their wares. The first department stores were really the wharves in this country, were really the wharves of New York and Boston. And this entire influence is left out of most of the assessments of, of the, um, the church's acceptance of usury in the 15 and 16 and 1700s. And we see that the Catholics started this in 1515 while their popes were from the De Medici banking family. And the Protestants began to accept usury in the late 1600s and struggled with it, and they struggle with it even still. It's evil. It should never be allowed. The loaning of money at interest should simply not be allowed. Okay. Should, uh, Bill? I'm, I'm not quite finished. Well, I, I just, um, I'm wondering if you're going to get to uh, the uh, foundation of the Bank of England. Well, you know, I'm going to talk about that with, with Clifton. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I have notes here. I could talk about it here, but no, no. I mean, if you're going to cover that uh, with Clifton, uh, by all means, yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure that we end approximately ten two, so we have uh, enough time to make the changeover to the other code. Okay. All right. Then, then let me let me go. Okay. While, while critics of usury found it increasingly difficult to specify the proper use of credit, a new genre of social commentary published in London from the 1660s through the 1690s, legitimated free-floating interest rates and arising loan fees as an economic necessity and a national mandate. Now, note that the Bank of England was founded in 1694. Cromwell, looking for funds to overthrow the king, went to Holland, and he borrowed from supposedly Dutch financiers, 
the funds he needed and returned to England and overthrew the king. And as soon as Cromwell overthrew the king, he allowed the Jews back into England. A Jewish, well, not quite Jewish, a, um, I, I have his name, and I'll, I'll discuss it when we with Clifton Emmerheiser. The founder of the Bank of England in 1694 got his financing from those same Dutch bankers that financed Cromwell. And that's basically how the Bank of England was founded. And I'll discuss more of it this afternoon. Uh huh. Okay. Very good. Well, you know, it amazes me, Bill, and uh, what you just presented here uh, should be mandatory economics, <laughs> economics 101. Well, and I hope I was clear because I, I think I put people to sleep because it, it's a hard story to get apart, uh, to get across in, in two hours. Oh yeah. And, and I wanted to show that you know the Jews were excluded from early Christianity, and done that was done mostly by the Catholics. Of course, of course, yeah. Well, be, well, uh, the Catholic Church didn't need to practice usury because they had, uh, you know, the uh, indulgences, they had booty from the Crusades. Well, yeah, they had a lot of other sins that I couldn't, right. you know, I mean, this. I, I said at the beginning, this takes many volumes and, and a hundred-minute sermon. It, it just don't make it. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, but, plus... Plus, they didn't have the expertise that money, money lending and foreclosure. You know, only the Jews, you know, as you said, they they learned that from Babylon. It, came, it all comes from the Talmud. It's all our debt system and and credit is all mystery Babylon. Yeah, yeah. Now, and, now and, the thing that amazes me is we've got all these Judeo-Christian pastors out there. None of them, absolutely none of them are speaking out against usury whatsoever. It's a, it, does the Bible exist for these people? Nobody, but the important thing to know, and I'll, I'll cover this with Clifton this afternoon, is that every dollar brought into our economy today automatically commands a payment of interest. That's right. That's right. There's, a, there's no such thing as an honest dollar anymore. <laughs> no, and there hasn't been in, in 100 years. Well, I remember you know uh, being brought up uh, on the streets of Chicago, and there used to be a saying when I was a boy in the 50s that the dollar is as good as gold. Okay? That's when it wasn't being inflated <laughs> into outer space. And ever since uh, the Nixon years, you know, because uh, we had the uh, – Lincoln Greenbacks actually remained in circulation until 1964 when they were removed by LBJ. The Lincoln Greenbacks did not earn one penny of interest for anybody in the hundred years that they were in circulation. Okay? And that's the difference between honest money versus debt money, which is the, what the Federal Reserve and these Jewish bankers invented way back in Babylon. You know, now my, my question to you is, you know, where are these Christian ministers, so-called Christian ministers? And you know, I'll simply looking the other way, while the entire world is being ripped off, constantly exploited like by parasites, by this system of usury. And then how do the Jews get off pretending to be God's chosen people, Israel, when they constantly they're the main violators of these laws? 
Absolutely. They're the primary users of the world. Yeah. And and with, it's propaganda that they were forced to do it. They weren't forced to do it. <laughs> right. They were the money changers in ancient Rome. I didn't go back that far, but... Right. Well, they were the ones that Jesus drove out of the temple with his own whip. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Because the Judahites didn't practice usury. The, the Edomite Jews practiced usury. The Herodians practiced it, but not to the children of Judah. And so, uh, as I said, I think uh, this uh, two-hour presentation you've given of the history of usury in the, you know from medieval times to the creation of the Bank of England should be absolute mandatory economics <laughs> for every every American citizen. And obviously, Europeans need to know this stuff too, because that's where this system flourished in the Middle Ages, you know, and, and became finally totally uh, established by the House of Rothschild. Right after the Napoleonic Wars. Well, right, but but that you know the Rothschilds are latecomers. That's right. I mean that they're latecomers to the game. The De Medici's were in the game long before them. Right. The right. the um the the fact that the Jews have a shetar in the Babylonian Talmud uh-huh. proves that they're not the Hebrews of the Old Testament. Right. That's the right. very fact that that thing is there, the very fact that those laws are in there. Yeah. proves that they're not the people they claim to be. Right. Otherwise, they would be practicing biblical morality, not Talmudic morality. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well, there's a very instructive uh, lesson. Uh, I think our people need to learn and you know, uh, advocate for the law in the Bible. And any so-called minister who says the law has been abolished or that we don't need to worry about usury is a damn liar. Okay, and worse than an infidel, he is a, a, a total traitor to Christianity and a traitor to his race. That's my opinion of these so-called pastors, <laughs> and I'm sure you agree. Absolutely. All right. Okay, all right, Bill, uh, we're going to have to uh, break uh, this section. Thank you for your excellent research. I'm sure it took you uh, quite a while to put this uh, lesson together. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously the people in the chat room are very uh, appreciative of your lesson here. And uh, I'm going to take over for the next hour, and then we'll see you in a couple of hours again with Chris Clifton Emheiser, okay? Praise Yahweh. Okay, praise Yahweh. Thank you, Bill. And Yahweh bless all you listeners. We're going to switch over to uh, code 22187 for the next two hours. My guest at that time is going to be Arthur Topham of Radical Press in, in Canada, who has been fighting a battle for freedom of speech against the organized Jewry in Canada who are, you know, total hypocrites in pretending to uh, preach tolerance, yet when they do not tolerate criticism of Jews. That's simply the way it is, folks. That's simply the way it is. And that's going to be the first hour of uh, the next program. And then for the second hour, Greg Howard and I will be talking about the Book of Enoch again and its relationship to prophetic events that are happening in the world today. Folks, the, the end times are heating up. Stay tuned. We'll be on in about 10 minutes. Yahweh bless, everybody.